Welcome to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz, sponsored by our friends at the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty here in Washington, D.C., a program that cuts through the chaos and confusion in the culture today by talking to kingdom citizenship, bold biblical principles for a robust public Christian life. And now your host, Dr. Greg Seltz. Good day, good day, Washington, D.C., and friends of the program all across the country. I'm Greg Seltz. Welcome to Liberty Action Alert. Today in our program, Dr. Eric Patterson, president of Religious Freedom Institute here in Washington, D.C., former dean of the School of Government at Regent University and also an author and speaker and a a good friend of our LCRL. Welcome, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Greg. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, first freedoms are under attack. And what's amazing to me is that people actually believe there's a narrative out there where the church is somehow this negative force in culture or this nefarious force in culture. And and somehow secular socialism is going to be a positive, wonderful replacement, even though it killed 110 million of its own people last century alone. Um I'm just amazed that people don't understand that conscience protection is foundational to liberty and that our religious freedoms uh, motivate our love for neighbor, and that's foundational to virtuous freedom in action. So you just recently wrote an article that said uh, the title was, Our First Freedom is in the Crosshairs. And so to get us started on this discussion, can you explain to our listeners what are our first freedoms, why are they precious, and and how in the world are they in danger in America? Greg, you've hit, really hit it right on the head. The, the first freedom, the fundamental idea of liberty, really starts by thinking about what is human nature really like. Right. And as Christians, we understand that uh, humans are created in God's image and that God has given us a capacity for will and for intelligence. And of course, he wants those to be directed at the right things. And just like you said, that's love of God. And love of neighbor. And so the freedom to responsibly do that is at the heart of what it means to be human. And it's at the heart of how to have a virtuous and actually just working, practically working society that's in tune with human nature. And so religious freedom, the freedom for people to pursue the truth, and that truth is outside of ourselves. Right. As Christians, we understand it to be supernaturally given, to be transcendent, that there's a right and wrong that's bigger than just our own life narrative or preferences, that's the foundation for having a responsible and a free society. Yeah. You know, what's amazing is I always ask people, uh, explain to me American exceptionalism. And uh, we've almost been browbeaten into thinking that there is no such thing. And one of the things that I point out is just what you just said, is that the founding fathers understood two concepts. One was human dignity, and that's rooted in conscience. It's rooted in uh, the the scriptural narrative that you were created by God in his image. But then the second thing, and this is what I think is counterintuitive and no one talks about today, they also knew that we were depraved, that we were sinful people, and that we were broken people, uh, that we had defied that. And so that's why they limited government. That's why they didn't look to government for these ultimate solutions. They said, it's got to come from our relationship to God. It's got to come from something, like you said, outside of ourselves in service to neighbor and service to him. And that is under attack today. So talk a little bit more about where people just, they don't really understand how foundational that tr- those two truths are to their very, very freedoms. 
Well, James Madison has that famous line that if if men were angels, that we wouldn't need government. <laughs> right. But of course, men aren't angels. <laughs> and that points us to that the proper role for government is for it to be limited and restrained to provide basic security and justice. Mm-hmm. It also reminds us that government is supposed to be the servant of the citizenry. And more importantly, that government only plays small but important roles in society. And where we've gotten to is a view that government should infuse every part of our social life. The founding fathers knew that the business sector, the religious sector, the educational sector, the agricultural sector, and many others were all parts of human flourishing. And frankly, that government only had a very limited role to play in many of them. And that set of truths is how you have a vital economically prosperous, virtuous, free society where men and women are able to pursue their callings and their vocations. And at the heart of it is their religious identity and the opportunity to be fully authentic religious selves in public life. Yeah. And I I think what you just said is, is very appropriate. And people need to understand this. Putting government in its proper place actually releases you to be the person that God created and redeemed you to be. Um, you know, the biblical narrative says it this way, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's where Jesus is kind of putting the crosshairs of a political dilemma. And he differentiates God's work, God's preserving work through even crazy folks like Caesar and God's saving work, obviously, through his son, Jesus Christ. But I, I wish I wish Jesus would have said, give to Caesar uh, what is Caesar's and only what is Caesar's. Then we would, because that's the what the rest of the Bible describes for us. And you're, you just pointed it out, you know, justice, uh, law and order. And these are the very things that we see kind of being undermined in our culture today. All right, well, let's think about it this way then. If government grows and and takes over all these aspects and starts to work even into these conscience areas and these service areas, as government grows, folks, you decrease. You decrease. And even that notion that give to Caesar, the the new the uh, American experiment says you're Caesar. So st- start acting like the the citizen God has uh, gifted you to be. Why do you think? I mean. So is it just that our culture really doesn't believe that that these faith statements are valuable anymore? Because it seems to be that people really are putting their trust more in, well, there's a government program that'll solve that, and with a little bit more money and technology, we'll overcome that. Is that really what's happening in culture? Well, I think it's even a bigger problem in our time. The problem in our time is the atomization of truth. So religious people, not just Christians— But in most places around the world, many, many people of a variety of faith traditions nonetheless agree on what you and I might call natural law or the principles that you should should never murder, stealing is wrong, lying is wrong, etc. And of course, as Christians, we recognize these as fundamental spiritual truths. Those truths also have to do with that men are men and that women are women, that a fetus is a human life. And these are largely agreed upon principles, uh, and we as Christians know that they're true. Here's the thing. We live in a time that says none of that is necessarily true. An individual gets to decide for themselves with no outside authority, no spiritual transcendent religious authority, no Bible, no Jesus. We get to decide if our preference is to be a male or to be a female. 
We get to decide whether it's convenient or not convenient for us to add to our family. We get to decide whether or not we're going to uh, end this familial relationship through divorce or something and preferentially choose another relationship. And at the heart of all of this is what Carl Truman and others have called expressive individualism. And I would say at the heart of the attacks on religious freedom are attacks that say, well, religion represents authority and an external truth, and that the philosophy of the day is, no, I get to define my own reality. Yeah, and you know, and I've tried to explain. It. I I call it secular pietism. You know, try to mm. give it words, secular puritanism, because it is a religious movement, even though it's secular in nature. But it's just that we are the center of that truth, like you just talked about. There is no God. There is no truth. There's just me and what I emote about myself. And and people, folks, by definition, that's what the Bible calls sin. Okay, <laughs> just by definition. But um, again, the church has always been the moral pushback on that, especially when it codifies in in government. And I think that's. Uh, I loved what you you wrote another article about heroes and anti heroes, and how we need again these foundational truths to rise back up, because if there is no truth then it's just every one of us acting on our own. Uh, we are all gods in our own eyes. And that is the foundation of chaos. I think you said, you know, even in the military in that article, you said, talk, you t start talking about how if all we've got are the truths, don't narc on each other and live and let live. Well, I'm not sure that's the fighting force you want to send into the field because they have no moral restraints now on them whatsoever. Whereas uh, the foundational truths of the scripture, thou shalt not murder, um, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, those kind of things, even temper uh, our, our, our aggressive use of proper force. I mean, religion and faith are so key to our foundational freedom. So talk a little bit more about that narrative. How can we start to take this narrative back that these moral truths are actually very positive things for us? That article that you referenced to comes from a, a briefing that I've done for military chaplains and for other groups that are that are that work every day with eighteen and nineteen year old young adults, and it's about what are the who are the heroes today that are the pop cultural icons. And if you right. think over the past decade, we've seen a it's so called humanization, but it's really bringing down some of the old characters like Superman and making them more flawed characters. Mm -hmm. But even more so are anti-heroes, people who have power and influence, but use it based on their own whims. They're angry. They're feeling lustful. They're feeling petulant. Uh, they just want to play with somebody's mind. So Loki, Black Adam, Deadpool, these ca Captain Jack Sparrow, these kind <laughs> right. of characters, right? And sometimes they're fun. But right. think about what drives them. It's a self-interestedness that drives them. And they might do a great thing on the one hand, they might save the day on the one hand, and then the very next day um, be, be a nefarious character in a lot of ways. Well, these are the heroes that many of our young people are seeing. And it mm -hmm. ties in to a lack of restraint in our society that says, you know, anything goes, you, you have the power to do whatever you want that's going to gratify yourself. And so, we need to turn the narrative. We need to recognize that the cultural forces of today, whether it's in Hollywood or if it's in the music industry or, or whatever, they're telling our young people, you should not have any restraint. You should have total license and unrestrained liberty to do whatever you want. Well, you know, that's not, 
that's not really actual freedom. Freedom is an ordered liberty to make choices, but in a reality that's that has that really does have bounds about what's right and wrong. And so that needs to be a starting point, whether you're a youth pastor or a parent or a military officer, help reshape our young people back to a set of uh, bounded liberties. That's the basis for human flourishing. Yeah. And I, again, that goes back to the founding fathers' understanding of human nature, both our dignity, yes, but also our depravity, yes. And those are always intention. And so, like you said, if you're motivated finally by love for God and love for neighbor, then you actually temper your those, the struggles and the impulses that you have. Well, if you kind of put yourself on the seat, uh, the throne, uh, as if you're God, then, you, you know, just doing whatever you feel like doing is actually bondage, but you've actually redefined it as freedom, which is is crazy. Uh, again, I, I struggle with this with, with our own f- people. I say we've got to take back the narrative that actually saying the word no is not always a bad thing. I mean, I'll, most young people think it's hate speech anytime someone says no to them. But in reality, God says his no so that he can tell us his yes, so that we can live in freedom. And I love Chesterton. He talks about this, how he, he didn't really like the church or even God's moral laws and all that stuff when he was a young man, when he was more of an agnostic, maybe even an atheist. But as he got older and he came to faith, he said, I began to realize that where God, especially through the church, put those barriers in my life, it was so that freedom could run wild. Because if I went over that barrier, I go over that cliff, now I'm, I'm gone. And I think that's what our, our young people don't seem to understand today. So, again, the church, I feel like it's been browbeaten into the corner as if it's being told you don't belong here. And in your first article, again, you talked about the freedoms or not just the freedom to believe, but the freedom to assemble and the freedom also to assert these religious truths in the public square. And that's what many, many people are saying. Well, no, that's you just do that in private. But in reality, this is public truth that's good for everyone. So how uh, how is RFI helping people uh, start to do that and to, to assert these words, not just for ourselves, but also for the sake of our culture? Yeah. Well, let me just affirm first what you said about religious liberty being capacious and broad and deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, religious liberty is not just you praying privately at home, and it's not just you and your co-religionists hiding in a sense, in a private space, in a church, but where no one can see you. Mm-hmm. Religious liberty means being uh, bringing your authentic religious convictions and the truths as you understand them into every part of life. And that's a beautiful thing in a diverse America. It should not be a threatening thing. And what that means is parents' responsibilities for raising their children in the faith and the choices they make about their education. It means that uh, that consumers of healthcare should have choices, including choosing doctors and nurses in their own faith tradition. And by extension, that mental health professionals and doctors and nurses and medical students should not be forced to practice things that violate their religious convictions, whether it be abortion or some sort of transition surgery. So there's a wide and broad range of of the issues of our day that tie to the fundamental rights of religious people to gather, to assemble, to publish, to speak, to learn about new religions, to make arguments within their denomination, but if if they don't win, to leave and to found a new denomination. So the right of exit and entry, the right to share one's faith, 
the right to say yes or no to a faith. And all of these things should not have government intervention. There shouldn't be state coercion in any of these areas. And so I think that that's the fundamental principle for people of faith. And we should be respectful of other people from different faiths and people who don't have faith in all of those dimensions that I just mentioned. And I think people don't understand that their moral understanding of the universe, their, their understanding of virtue and why it's so important, this is so needed today now more than ever. You hear people say things like, well, trust the science. That's going to solve all our problems. I said, no, science just tells you that something is. It doesn't tell you whether it's right or whether it's wrong. I mean, think about this. There's this phrase called do no harm. Why? Where did that come from? It didn't come from the science because scientists will go sometimes wherever the, the data leads them and sometimes over the cliff until there's a moral restraint that says, no, human beings don't do that. And so do no harm. You Even with the power that you have, do no harm. Or even in just war theory, the Geneva Convention rules of how to treat prisoners. Where did that come from? It sure didn't come from warriors because warriors just want to win. Well, then, then we start tempering war, even though it's, you know, it's terrible to ever go to war. But just war said if we have to, we're still going to try to do it in an honorable way. Well, that's the moral restraints that, stop, that are coming back on humanity, because if we just did whatever we, whatever we darn well pleased, uh, we can do some terrible, terrible things to each other. Again, taking back the narrative. I know RFI, uh, that you guys have an educational focus. Talk a little bit about how we've got to recapture uh, not only these moral foundations, but also that we have to actually grow in our virtuous expression of liberty and, and how that's not just something private, that's also a public act that we need to do. Now, well, one of the key areas for us at the Religious Freedom Institute is education and training for teachers, for professors, and especially for students. So we have a curriculum that's freely available on our website. It's five lessons called the America's First Freedom Curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's a high school level curriculum that one to all five of the lessons can be dropped into an existing civics or American history course at the high school level. And it's tied to the national social studies standards. So it's suitable for public schools as well as for private schools or homeschoolers. Oh, Uh, Next month, a middle school version of that will be available on our website as well. And teachers can uh, contact us directly through our website and have uh, access to teachers' resources, everything from crossword puzzles to videos and things for their classrooms. We have a second initiative called Statesmanship and Religious Freedom. It's for university students in which we do an intensive three-day seminar to look at people like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr., who made public arguments based on their faith, but that were for the common good of everyone in their societies. And then we link the students with people like former Congressman Frank Wolf or British Member of Parliament Fiona Bruce, who's a great religious freedom champion, so the students can meet people who are working on these issues today. So a key for us, a key for the United States, and a key for people who are religious freedom lovers is to recapture the imagination of our young people around how vital religious freedom is. The the simple fact of the matter is, is that religious freedom has largely been taken out of the contemporary high school classroom and the university classroom. And much more of the focus, including among our allies in the liberty movement, there's much more focus on freedom of speech, that you can say whatever you want, right? But uh, and less of a focus on this foundational principle of freedom of religion, that there is a moral basis uh, 
and that it ties to speech and to assembly and to private property and to other fundamental liberties, uh, we can't lose the moral content that religious freedom brings to bear in all. Well, and I think that's what I argue, too, is that secular socialism, you know, assumes that we can have all the same liberties without foundational truths that have a relationship to God. And and so Dennis Prager, who he's not a Christian, he's a conservative, a Jewish conservative on the radio. Uh, many of you know him. Um, but he says this, and I love this. He says, if you don't believe in God in America, act like you do, because your freedoms depend on it. And I think that's that. There's something in that statement that challenges us. These religious liberty freedoms are are vital because without them, all religious all liberties go. And I think that's why you you said that it's our first freedom, and it's in the crosshairs because once God is uh, not the foundation to our freedoms, once our moral, virtuous, religious uh, practice of these freedoms is not foundational, all the freedoms go with it because human beings can dispense with them very, very quickly. What do you think of his statement? I, I just thought that was not only provocative, but it actually got to the heart of the matter. I do think that that's a, it's a very powerful statement because liberty has to be uh, protected by some sort of institutional framework. Right. And if you see liberty as devoid of any transcendent um, nature, if you see it instead as a gift of government to you, right. government grants you rights. Well, that makes the ultimate God in our society government. And that makes our politics simply a battle for whoever can get the most power at any given time to then impose their view of reality and morality on everybody else. And that is what we saw, as you said, throughout the 20th century in places like the Soviet Union. And we still see it in places like China, North Korea, and elsewhere today. The alternative to all of that is the humility of recognizing that every person is created in God's image, right. and that gives us both great potential, but also limits. And those limits are the kinds of limits that we want to enshrine in law. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. talks a lot about this in his famous letter from Birmingham jail, when he says that you can tell a just law because a just law is in tune with human nature, and it uplifts the human, whereas mm -hmm. unjust laws degrade the human. And that that's actually a great litmus test for thinking about religious liberty and other liberties. Is this policy uplifting of humanity and of the individual human? Or does this policy somehow deface or degrade or dehumanize our brothers and sisters around the world or right here at home in the United States? Well, uh, well said, and it just shows, again, the power of religious uh, teachings or relig morality in our public life. Um, it's foundational to so many things that we hold dear. I'll, I'll leave us with this thought. James Madison said that Martin Luther, who's obviously the head of our tradition, Martin Luther actually was the forerunner of the Bill of Rights. And what he meant by that was when you differentiate the church's role in the public role in society and the state's role, but but give them their legitimate place as public authorities, those two in intention actually birth individual freedom. And that's why he said you have to have a duly organized public church and a duly constituted and organized uh, public government, and each has their sphere of influence over us. You hold those intention, you have freedom. You knuckle one of those under, 
suddenly you and your freedoms are gone as well. Well, Eric, thank you for RFI and its work uh, teaching, and we'll make sure that people know about those resources. Find them at religiousfreedominstitute.org. And thanks for the battle together because uh, these first freedoms, they're precious, and they ultimately allow us to, to see the beautiful freedom that God gives us in His Son alone. So thanks for being with us today. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in today. To get to know our LCRLDC work better, check out our website at lcrlfreedom.org. Contained there are resources to empower your public square dynamic discipleship. Or check out our weekly Word from the Center opinion piece every Friday at facebook.com forward slash lcrlfreedom. Till next time, God bless you always. I'm Greg Sells. Have a great week. You've been listening to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz, Executive Director of the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty in Washington, D.C. This program has been brought to you by the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty. 